Welcome and happy Friday. It's January 27th, 2017, and this is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I'm here in the studio with Laura Redman, who's our Deputy Digital Director, Catherine Grave, and Sebastian Modak, who are both editors for our website, and Jordi Lippi-McGraw, one of our frequent contributors. Our theme for the week is how to plan a trip to Asia without getting overwhelmed. There are reasons why we want to talk about that this week, and it's not just because I'm going to Japan, although that's an excellent reason anytime we have a podcast. But... um, (laughs) I'm curious, Asia is a really, really big place. So how can we break that down for people? And why, why is now a good time to be talking about this? What's going on? Well, Chinese New Year starts this weekend, so we're happy. We're celebrating that, although I wouldn't recommend going during Chinese New Year because a lot of places are closed. A lot of people work and go visit their families outside the city. So it would definitely be quieter, but it's kind of like going to Paris in August. You just won't get the same kind of experience that you normally would get. But we're also just talking about China and some other countries that celebrate Lunar New Year as well. We're gearing up on cherry blossom season in Japan, which is coming up in March and April, depending on how the weather plays. Cats and the height is supposed to be in April this year, right? Right. Like, depending on where you are in Japan. Start from the south, and as you move north, the later it'll get. So it'll peak in April in the northern part, but like in Okinawa, it's already happening now. Okay. Oh, really? Already? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And last week we were talking, uh, Cynthia was in Vietnam at the time, and so she was, what she and Mark were both talking about is that the run up to and the period immediately after Chinese New Year are actually pretty great. And they both were saying the same thing you just said, which is right on Chinese New Year. It's kind of like being in New York City on New Year's Eve. You don't really want to be doing that. But beforehand, all the places have this sort of special menus. What's that scene like? You've been there during that, right? Yeah, I lived in Singapore at that time. And I also went up to visit uh, my brother in Beijing when he was living there kind of right before the holiday. So it's festive, right? You know, it's it's very familial. Um, it's very much about gathering with your family. It's about, um, you know, bringing mooncakes and the little red envelopes. And and depending on where you are, it's about fireworks. Fireworks. I mean, that's where they parades. came from, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. For all that period of time. But I think even beforehand. I mean, even when I lived in Hong Kong, I was, was between when I was three years old and five years old. But I have like a very distinct memory of the fireworks display in Hong Kong for Chinese New Year. It made a big impression. It was just the most insane. Like they spell out, you know, Gong Si Fa Chai, Happy New Year with fireworks. And yeah. there's like in the shape of dragons. It's, it's nuts. That being said, I do agree that it's probably not the best time for a trip to your first trip to China or something because you'll find that there's people are off with their families celebrating. They're not, you know, running their businesses. And I guess, Jordi, you could talk about it. You were just there, right? Yeah, it's funny you say that because I was just there on, I guess it was Sunday, and the guide that met us told us that the airport was especially crazy because everyone was traveling to go and see their families. It took us probably about 40 minutes just to get out of the highway area where the airport was. So it's definitely kind of a crazy time right now. Mm -hmm. So, Jordi, you did a really cool layover in Beijing. Do you mind talking about that for a sec? Yeah, sure. So I was coming back from Australia with my family and I kind of freaked out when I realized that we had an eight hour or you know seven and a half hour layover in Beijing airport and I didn't know what we would do at that time. So I frantically started Googling what do you do at the Beijing airport on a seven hour layover <laughs> as any sane person would do. And I finally came across this company called appropriately named Beijing Layover Tours. And they had an option where you could literally go and visit a portion of the Great Wall of China on your layover. All you needed was a minimum of six hours in Beijing. 
They came, they picked you up from the airport. They gave you all the information of how to go through security. The portion of the wall that we went to was about an hour away from the airport. So we were able to go drive an hour, go see the Great Wall, walk it a little bit and had a whole guided tour and made it back in time to catch our flight to New York. So it was just this awesome way to kind of check off one of those bucket list items that Mm -hmm. you would plan a whole trip to go do. And we were able just to do it on our way back home. You'd recommend it? It wasn't just like a frantic, oh, look, there it is. Okay, now get back in the van. We're going back to the airport. Yeah, how easy was it? It was easier than I had imagined. First of all, I think a lot of people, and it's true, are under the idea that you need a visa to go to China, but they have this special 72-hour visa-free access. Mm -hmm. So the tour company set it all up beforehand, gave us the necessary paperwork, told us exactly where to go. So it took us maybe about an hour to go through the process. The guide was there waiting, the van was there waiting, and we got to go. And we could have spent probably two hours if we wanted, kind of walking around and exploring. Unfortunately for us, it was extremely cold. I think Mm -hmm. it was maybe 10 degrees out that day. And we were coming from Australia, so... um, (laughs) Cyber to 10 degrees, yeah. Yeah, by the time we got there, our feet were completely frozen. So we cut our trip a little bit short, but we definitely could have spent more time walking around. They even, if you go at a different time, you can actually take, I didn't know this existed, a 15 minute toboggan ride down oh, the I've mountain. Oh, I've done that. I've done that too. Yeah, it's, it's so fun. fun. <laughs> I was just sort of squeaking the brakes the whole time. Me too. Because you could <laughs> easily snow? fly No, off. no, it's a, it's a kind of a slide yeah. almost yeah, and you're in yeah, a little metal slide. toboggan. Uh-huh. I was going to ask too, Jordy, were there people there when you were there? Was it packed? What time did you go? Because the toboggan line can also be massively long. It's one way to get down from the wall. Was it uh, at wall. the same place or is this something that you can do at multiple points on the wall? There's one spot on the wall. I think I went to the same place you did, Jordy. But yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if it's at multiple points. I just happen to know that it was at this point that I went to. But we actually, our flight landed at like 4.30 in the morning. So we got to the wall probably by 8 a.m. after going through all of the customs and everything. And we were the first people there. So it was actually kind of cool because we had the whole wall to ourselves. That's amazing, man. So even though it was freezing cold, it was great to be able to go up and you kind of take like a ski lift type thing up to the top. You can hike it, but we were obviously freezing. So we took the fastest (laughs) way possible and we got these incredible pictures where there's no one in sight. There's no tourists. Mm. So I'm sure if you go maybe at a later point in the day, it will get a little bit busier. And if you go on a warmer day, I'm sure it's even busier. But it was really, really cool to be able to be there first thing in the morning and actually basically see the sunrise at the Great Wall of China. So it was absolutely an incredible experience, even though it took us about three hours to thaw our feet out. I love that because it's so rare to go not that far outside of Beijing and tackle a part of the wall that doesn't just have mobs of people, mobs of hawkers selling like Mao booklets outside and fun little like trinkets and everything. Can you sell Mao booklets? The little red book. Can't you you give them away? No, they sell everything. (laughs) And what's cool about this portion of the wall, too, is it's actually on top of the mountain. So you also get these incredible views. And it happened to be a really crystal clear blue day when I think the guy told us that it had been really kind of overcast the past few days. So we got these incredible views at the top, too. So it totally made it worth it. So you guys are all experienced uh, people. But, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm wondering... We did sort of say without getting overwhelmed, right, like how to plan for a trip to Asia. So, you know, for first-time travelers, for people who haven't been before to this part of the world, what are some of the challenges that we can reassure people about or or give people tips on how to get over? Jet lag, obviously, these are long flights. What kinds of things should people be thinking about? I mean, I think first in the planning stages, it's like, okay, I've never been to Asia. 
mean, that's huge. That's like being like you haven't, you know, you haven't been to 60% of the world lives in this continent. And you're saying, you know, how do you decide where to go is number one. And I think the mistake that I've seen a lot of people sort of fall into is trying to do too much with mm. too little time. They're like, oh, I have two weeks in Asia. That means I can like knock out these six countries in Southeast Asia. Yeah. And while it's possible, and like I've done trips like that before too, and you do get to see a lot, it kind of takes away from, I think, a lot of the value of traveling in at least like for Southeast Asia specifically. Because, you know, a lot of these places, Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, you could spend two weeks there and see like all kinds, a whole diversity of landscape experience, all kinds of different food, you know, culture, all of that. So I think it's like really not trying to be like, I'm going to do everything on this Asia trip and really just narrowing it down and be like, you know, this time I'll do Japan or like this time I'll do Vietnam. This time I'll do maybe Cambodia and, and Laos and be like, I'll come back, you know? And like, I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges is just deciding, okay, I'm just going to narrow it down and do this. And then maybe on my next trip, I'll do this rather than trying to like knock out seven countries. Off it's your te- it's tempting once. though, because partly we, we have this Americans in particular have this thing in Europe where we do that, where we go, we're going to do France and we're going to do Spain and we're going to do Italy all in two weeks. And we're going to see Venice and Rome. And, and those places are all very close together and the flight isn't very long. And there's this temptation, I think for a lot of people when you're going to Asia, you're taking such a long flight. It's like, let me try and do Australia and New Zealand. Let me try and do, you know. I think proximity is huge, right? I think people consider a trip to Japan and, I don't know, Thailand in the same breath. And I think that's just a little too far. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like trying to do New York and L.A. in the same one-week trip, you know. And, yeah, you could do it, but maybe you only see a little bit of each, and that's that. You spend half your time traveling. And part of it, I think, is due to, and we can, this is maybe a good transition into the latest news about, budget travel from Asia. But part of the challenge, I think, is based on the kind of the way the industry's developed, where you have maybe, let's say, like three major Asian airlines that fly you in from the U.S. So it's like you're flying Singapore through Singapore, you're flying Cathay through Hong Kong or, you know, ANA through Tokyo. It's not like then from there you can like hop into a car and knock out four countries like you can in Europe. Then you have to try to figure out how to get from Japan to Thailand, which isn't necessarily easy. Right. There are flights available, but the kind of robustness of that infrastructure within Europe from traveling from country to country doesn't really exist as much in at least in East Asia and Southeast Asia. But that might change with uh, this news. Yeah. We, What's um, the news? Just wrote about it yesterday. But Air Asia, which is one of the first budget airlines in Southeast Asia, they kind of set the tone late 1990s, early 2000s. I used to fly it a lot when I lived over there, and I I loved it. Um, It was comfy. It was relatively comfy. It was like revolutionary when it came out, too. I remember taking my first flight on Air Asia and being like, wow, I'm not not used to this in this part of the world, necessarily. Right. You get leather seats. You get decent meal. You know, you can pay for meals. It's all kind of the a la carte model. But basically, think of it as like a an alternative to Norwegian and WOW. If Norwegian and WOW Air are doing these really low-cost transatlantic flights, AirAsia just got approval from the U.S. government, FAA, to start flying to the U.S. And that's the first time a budget carrier has gotten that okay. We don't know when that's going to start. We don't know what U.S. airports they're going to. There's talk of them definitely doing Hawaii. That's a possibility. And AirAsia has a number of affiliate groups. So there's like AirAsia Indonesia, Mm -hmm. which is very different from... AirAsia X, which is the long haul affiliate. And that's probably what you would fly if you were going from the US over there. So, you know, you get those planes and some of them might have premium flatbeds. You know, there's still some business class options, um, but it's basically, a, you know, an economy way to go anywhere. Oh God, how, what's the longest flight you've taken? Like 
18 hours? Six, yeah, 17 hours, something. Six economy, hours. but not like spirit economy. Yes. Economy yeah. like, a like little, Wow or Norwegian. Norwegian. I think Norwegian's fairly comparable. And it was like pay what you want, but at least when I was flying it around Southeast Asia, it felt afford. It wasn't like insane. It wasn't like you were paying $8 for a soft drink. It was like you were paying $3 for like a delicious bowl of instant noodles or something, right. you know? Um, is it possible they'll doing. come to the mainland, or is it? Or, or, I think it's possible. Yeah, Hawaii? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. nationwide <laughs> approval, so I don't see why not. Why yeah. they wouldn't? You know, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, and so that is going to make it easier, at least theoretically, for people from the states to get there or from Canada to get there. Mm-hmm. So that's great. And I also think when you're thinking about your very first trip to Asia, we talk regionally. You know, mm-hmm. I think maybe look at Japan on its own, or Japan and Korea. You look at China on its own. You could do. Northeastern China, which is just Beijing and the area around there. You could do Beijing and Shanghai. You could do Hong Kong, Taiwan, Macau as a trip. But then you could do a couple different Southeast Asia trips. Mm-hmm. So, like, I want to debate. Like, if it's your first trip out there, where do you go? Yeah, that's my question is, are there places that are better for that first time travel? And granted, everybody's different and everybody's coming from a different perspective. But generally speaking, are there places that are a little bit easier to plan for, a little bit easier to get to and manage once you're there? What would you say, KLG? I would probably say, I mean, it's, again, depends on what kind of trip you want, but I would say Japan, not just because I grew up we there, but because, yeah. but because it has such a great infrastructure, in my opinion, it has like the best travel system in the world. Everybody, everything is in English. I mean, if that's a concern, I think that we were talking about concerns easier. I think a lot of people feel that Asia is not only physically so far away, but it's just so so different and you know there's a concern to, about the language just to be clear like we are presuming something right. here which is perhaps unfair but we're presuming it's a western traveler True. canada the united states or right. something that's the general audience that yeah all you guys about. out there we're assuming you're in america sorry about that if you're not please <laughs> or tell us we're canada or canada. america <laughs> we'll say right. but yeah i would say japan for those reasons infrastructure language i don't know how long a trip would you do Oh, First, at least 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. And can you do, so like a couple of us, like Japan is the trip I wanted to take this year. I don't know that I'm going to be able to. It's the one I'm, I want to take this year. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be able to. <laughs> Brad's going. I'm planning to go to Tokyo and Kyoto. And yeah. that's pretty much all I'm planning to do. But I'm curious, what would you recommend? You know, wh- where should I be going? I mean, I think those are the two premier cities in Japan. If you had more time to get a different taste, I would go down south to Okinawa and maybe, you know, work your way from north to south. Tokyo and Kyoto are very different cities. Kyoto and Tokyo were both on our best cities this year. Tokyo was our our big winner. They were one and three, right? One and two. One and two. Yeah, they were back to back. Yeah, so our readers really loved them this year. Yeah, so I think, you know, when you go, you'll see the differences in architecture and culture because, you know, Kyoto is the imperial capital and it's got so much history. It's much more romantic, I think. Mm Would you be able to do a trip to the mountains during that? Is it kind of like you go down to Okinawa and do the islands, or you can go up and yeah. do the mountains? Yeah. Okay. So you have to kind of decide seasonally. Do you want to go for like a ski or a beach? Yeah. I mean, because Okinawa is so far. I mean, it's closer to Taiwan than it is to Japan, mm-hmm. right? So that's a three-hour flight, and mm-hmm. that's there. When you get down to the Ryukyu Islands, that's more than a hundred islands to choose from. Okinawa is just the biggest. Seb, what's your feeling on that? What would you vote for? I think again, my the bias is going to shine through because as Catherine grew up in Okinawa, I grew up in Indonesia, so I'm going to say Indonesia. I think it's uh, worth the Make trip the on its own. I think just the amount you can see in a single trip, because I mean you're talking about the numbers differ, but at least 9,000 inhabited islands in this you know island chain, and I think you can kind of choose what you want. It's like, almost like a continent in itself. 
you know, based on the trip you decide to do. This will show that I can still be objective with my bias, and I'd say skip Jakarta or spend a day in it, which is where I, you know, spent my formative years. It's a great place to live. Not you're gonna get hate mail visited. from Jakarta. Yeah, <laughs> really. Why? why skip I mean, Jakarta? it's just like <laughs> it's a big city. It's just a yeah. It's a giant Southeast Asian city that's just insane, and you'll spend three hours in traffic on your way into town from mm. the airport. I mean, if you have a friend there, if you have someone who knows their way around, then by all means go. You'll have a great time. I just don't think it's a city built for tourists. It's a city built for, you know. Business, business and like you know commerce and it just has that energy that you can find in a lot of Southeast Asian capitals even if it does have its uniqueness as well but if you're if you're on the limited time you know maybe spend a day there have a good meal and then move on you know there's a number of trips you can take there's Bali which I'll still go up to bat for um, despite I think a reputation that it's slowly getting as being just completely oversaturated with tourists which parts of it are and I think it carries a not so great reputation because of certain parts of it, namely the area around Kuta Beach, um, which has just become like where you go to see the worst impulses of humanity at work. It's well, that's where you fly all into, right? All night. I mean, you close to it, yeah. Kind of Depensar. Depensar, yeah. It's the Miami um, Beach of. Yeah, it was a great place to go as a high schooler for spring break. Mm. I'll just put it that okay. way. Okay. Um, not so great. So like the Ibiza of, yeah. of Southeast. Uh, yeah. Not not that nice. Yeah, not even that. It's, it's <laughs> oh, trashier, <sorry>. trashier <laughs> nightlife Yikes. scene. Um, well, no, it, that's also where the bombing was. A long, yeah. I mean, over a decade ago now. But that's um, it has that heritage unfortunately but yeah. i feel like people get to the airport sorry to hijack your trip no. but I, I i'm all for bali too and yeah uh, they get to depenzar and they don't get that far outside of it but i think bali is best yeah. experience up to two hours outside yeah. of the airport yeah there's no other place in the world like it that island because of its history its culture is in this majority muslim country there's this one island that basically managed to stay hindu despite the expansion of islam throughout the the archipelago and that has kind of combined with these like animist beliefs. And so it's just this very, I mean, you guys know me, I'm not one for this kind of stuff, but it is a very spiritual place. You feel it, you know, there's ceremonies every day. If you're in Ubud up in the mountains, um, you'll see a ceremony every day, every morning, every shopkeeper has a little offering outside of their store that they make meticulously, you know, using banana leaves. And you, so you, you feel that just like in the air, then the music and the gamelan music that comes from there. And it's a place where even Ubud has sort of become, has its own, uh, strange reputation that has developed, I think largely because of Eat, Pray, Love and all of that, where it's like, you know, lots of yoga studios and vegan restaurants and which it's fine. But you go to Ubud, you rent a motorcycle, you can just drive out into the mountains, get completely lost, you know, turn your GPS off and just go and you'll have a wonderful time and then find your way back using GPS at the end, which I've done many times. Just like a place where you can really get lost and you could spend two weeks there and have a great time. And then beyond that, from there, there's a bunch of different kind of sailing options, cruise options, but they're on sailboats where you can kind of just go east from Bali and they just go from island to island, many of which are completely uninhabited. So you just stop at these completely abandoned beaches, you know, and uh, jump out of the boat, swim around a bit, maybe have lunch on the beach, get back on the boat, stop at Komodo where you can see the Komodo dragons, have a little planet Earth moment. That's one trip, and then there's you know going oh to. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, like you you sold me, but. Like, <laughs> but there's uh, like Jogjakarta. There's there's Jogjakarta. There's Sumatra. Like yeah. there's a whole other. There's you know the volcanoes in central Java. There's Sulawesi, which is a whole other trip. It's just like, you could spend two weeks just on one of those. And people think of Bali, I think, as just a beach destination, and it is so much more. I think it's. I think beaches are like the least impressive part. Yeah, of it. I you agree. can find much better beaches. You actually, you can't. It's hard to swim. 
off the coast, like right, not so far outside of Depenzar, just to the west of it. I stayed in a long time ago, so I think I was in a hostel or something, but I stayed near Dreamland Beach, which yeah. is known as a surfing beach, but it's not a good swimming beach mm-hmm. because, you know, I grew up on the shore. I grew up swimming, thinking I could handle whatever current comes my way. And this is the first time I've ever been pulled out by a lifeguard. It's intense. So yeah. it's intense. You don't go for like, I mean, there are lots of beautiful resorts too mm-hmm. that have inlets where it's going to be calm and you'll be able to swim. But I think of Bali as like a mountain and a rice paddy destination too. You yeah, know, like beautiful too. jungle, yeah. waterfalls. Went to Munduk, which was this like crazy little, no tourists were there, you know, two hours north into the mountains. And we had like a set of villas to ourselves, And we had a tour guide who took us to his home and introduced us to his family and his pet monkey. And we ate jackfruit off the tree. You know, it's so intimate yeah. when you get farther outside the tourist destinations. And there's, I mean, I spent five years there and there's so much I haven't seen that's like still up there on my bucket list, namely Raja Ampat, which is this tiny, my, I'm, I'll end soon, I promise. This tiny <laughs> I feel like I have to get Catherine a rebuttal. Yeah, I know, I thought we were doing like two minutes Sorry, last, last plug. It's like this debate tiny, club. tiny cluster of islands off the coast of West Papua, which is the Indonesian portion of the island of Papua, where Papua New Guinea is, has like, I think the highest or one of the highest levels of marine biodiversity in the world. And you can just kind of rent these sort of houseboats and you just stay there and you just scuba dive or snorkel, you go from tiny island to tiny island, that's number two on my bucket list after Japan. So, Do you have to know how to drive a houseboat when you do that? Or is no, it, it's all rentals. It you rent it out, this comes with a crew. It like, comes with a crew? Yeah. Okay. And it's not, I mean, it's not insane, like, things in general are cheaper way. down no, there. No, I know, yeah. I'm, so. I'm, I'm, yeah. yeah Japan's I'm, not very thinking. cheap, that is one thing. That's true. Right. Yeah, Jordy, what would you say? Well, I think I would have to say Thailand for several reasons. One, I think it's a country that suits a lot of different people's interests. So you can go for a honeymoon and have a super romantic getaway. You can go for a wellness vacation. There's tons of different yoga options or whatever you're into. You can be a backpacker and go. Uh, The food is incredible. It's kind of like it suits so many people's different interests that you could go and have a totally different trip than the person right next to you and, and still be in the same country. And like you said, Japan is great. Tokyo is incredible, but it's super expensive. Where Thailand, I feel like, is way more accessible. Or if you want to have a totally over-the-top luxurious experience, you can. And What would your sort of 101, you know, first-timers experience, how long would you stay and where would you recommend you don't miss? Well, I went for about two weeks, I think, and I don't think you need to spend that, kind of like Jakarta, you don't need to spend that much time in Bangkok. I did it for two nights, once, one night on the way there, one night on the way back, kind of saw the highlights, and then I went off to Kopp, which I think, again, you only need a couple of nights for. What I really loved was actually up north in Chiang Mai, mm-hmm. where you get to kind of get out a little bit. I went to the Thai cooking school, which was incredible. It was the best Thai food that I've ever had in my entire life. You go to the market in the morning, you pick up everything, you go to the farm and you get to pick your vegetables and then you make this incredible meal. I don't think I could, I don't think I could have Thai food for weeks after that because (laughs) it was just, it was so rich and it was so delicious and it was in this incredible, beautiful setting. So I would say to definitely spend some time in the North and go to the beaches like Koh Samui or I stayed at at Salad Beach, which is on Koh Panyang, but way further away from like the full moon parties or the half moon parties. Mm -hmm. It's literally this little stretch of beach 
that we felt like we had all to ourselves. It was like one of those moments. I went with a girlfriend and we were sitting there in the crystal clear waters, which are actually perfect swimming beaches, unlike Bali, some of the Bali's beaches. And we turned to each other and we're like, wow, we are really far away from home. It was just like (laughs) one of those incredible moments where it's a scenery that you don't see anywhere else. There was no one else on the beach. And if I had to make one argument for Thailand, where else in the world can you get $6 massages for an hour? <laughs> that, that's a compelling argument. It's very true. But I have I, I every wanna... single day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> now that you mentioned that. But I'm curious, what are half moon parties and full moon parties? So obviously they take place on the full moon and the half moon and the full moon parties take place on the beach. And it's just kind of like this crazy wild party. I think a lot of people do drugs and they get drunk and they paint themselves with really glow in the dark paint. And it's just like this wild party all night long. We weren't there for that. We were there for the half moon party. Of course not. Of course, of course you were. We're two girls traveling on our own. We were very responsible. Of course. Um, we went to the half moon party, which takes place in the jungle. And it's the similar kind of feel where everyone's just dancing. There's music. There's people with those, you know, I don't know. What do you call them? Where they're rolling around fire everywhere. Um, and it's just, they do yeah. half as many drugs. It's <laughs> literally about to say the same thing. <laughs> you guys need new jokes if you're coming up with the same one. Uh, it's just, it's a big party and everyone comes out for it, but it can get a little bit crazy. So it was kind of nice to go and stay at a quieter beach, you know, maybe about an hour away, but it was super easy to get a car to drive you down. So it, you can kind of have the best of both worlds. So Laura, you're up last. What's, I, I, I know have you a, were. I have a whole trip planned. Okay. Let's I hear just, it. I just had to do this for a friend a okay. few days ago. Okay. Happily, I gladly do this. If you're friends with me, you know I'll send you like full itineraries. Or just or, message her on Twitter and she'll do it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Catherine. Ner- nervous laughter. Let the request Sorry. Yeah. Dan in 825. At Dan in 825. Yeah. She hey, Laura, trip. two weeks. I want to go somewhere. Tell me where to go. We actually, we actually do get those Facebook messages. All the time. All, the time. All right. Okay. Two weeks. You have two weeks. 10 yeah. to 12 days. If you have 14, it changes a little, but... Here's what I'm thinking. You can either fly into Hong Kong or you can fly into Singapore. Use that as your start or your end point. Hong Kong, you need two days. You stay at the upper house. You get out on a ferry. You go to one of the little islands. You have to get out of the city itself, but the why city the, is why beautiful. The upper, sorry, why the upper house? What's it's the upper beautiful. house? It's beautiful. It's one of our top hotels. I think it's a gold list property for Condé Nast Traveler, so it is one of our approved hotels. We love it. From there, though, the, the food is fantastic. I mean, it's definitely a shopping city if you have that impulse. Um, but what kind of food are we looking for? Where should I be going? You know, you should check our website. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to talk for like half an hour? I want to give you the full itinerary. Go for it. Go ahead. And I'll say one quick plug. I think for me, this is going to be a whole other I just podcast. Mean like markets or, or particular types of food. Like should yeah. we be looking for noodles? Should we be looking for... What's the big market in Hong Kong? I went there. Stanley Market? Yeah. Yeah. So, so start, you could go there. Um, Hong, Kong, okay. Hong Kong's restaurant scene is excellent. So it has a lot of Michelin starred places, but also has a lot of great just like... Street food, right? Yeah, dumpling. You're going yeah. for dim sum, right? If you're yeah. going to get some of the best dim sum in the world, it's in Hong Kong, it's in Shanghai. So yeah. Also for me, hands down, most beautiful skyline in the world. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. At night, Kowloon Bay? Yeah, it's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. So take your drone. <laughs> get up to the peak, fly your drone. Don't we, we didn't endorse that. You'll probably get arrested. Yes, we don't know if you can actually fly a drone legally in Hong Kong. <laughs> we have no idea. So the, okay, okay, we're so from Hong Kong. This is the north to south itinerary. Okay. You could also do a south to north, and that starting point would be Singapore. Okay. Okay. I'll talk so about just that play it in, in reverse. Play it in reverse. All right. 
Uh, Spin the podcast backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to keep going north to south. Okay, so we're in Hong Kong. I would say if you have the time, tack on a day trip to Macau. Macau is kind of, uh, it has this Portuguese influence, but it's also kind of like Las Vegas, lots of big casinos. Yeah, Yeah, but it's a cool place to see. You know, it's very different and you can learn a lot. More like Monaco or more like Vegas? You know, I'd say in terms of appearance, it's maybe a little more Atlantic City with a Portuguese influence. Okay. Um, Colorful tiles. Colorful, yes. And great Chinese gaming. You can learn all kinds of new games. It's like in Skyfall. It is in Skyfall. Right, James Bond, that's where he goes. Then from there, I think it's a toss-up. You could either do Siem Reap in Cambodia or Chiang Mai in Thailand, like Jordi said. I think what you're getting there is the cultural excursion. So you're going for temples. Um, Siem Reap has one of the grandest temple systems in the world, Angkor Wat. Angkor Wat itself is beautiful but crowded. You know, everyone goes there at sunrise to get the same photo, and you frame that same photo, and it's wonderful. But there are also some wonderful other little temples that if you have a private guide, they can get you there, and they will... You, know, you should have a private guide. You should right? have a private guide. And yeah. it's not again, it's not expensive for no. uh, for what like a New York or a United States budget, right? No, you can across Southeast Asia, you can stay in five star properties for what you would. Yeah, you're going to pay in the hundreds, maybe two mm-hmm. hundreds. Right. So, and these we're talking like Como Metropolitans too, the Siam and Bangkok. See, I'm not done. You get me going. We're in. Siem Reap right now, we're in Cambodia. It's on fire. <laughs> the Amansara is the best. So that's also another gold list property. So you stay in Siem Reap for maybe like two days. And then if you decide you want to do Chiang Mai, you talk to Jordy. Okay? <laughs> Tweet jo- Jordy. Jordy yeah. Tweet Jordy. We're going to tell you at the end. You have to stay through the end to get Jordy's uh, Twitter. From there, another two to three day trip, you go to Bangkok. I loved Bangkok. Me too. If you love big, dirty, smelly cities. Take that, Jordy. Cities, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you go there. Chach Chak Market is such a touristy thing, but it is so incredible. It's a weekend market where they sell everything from like handmade necklaces to roosters, you know, and it's <laughs> massive. It's absolutely massive. So it's just an experience. If you are in need of a rooster. You never know. Maybe some people are. Can you get that through <laughs> customs? Good question. I'll try next time. <laughs> at, 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 what's the TSA? Emotional t- support animal. The, the, yes. My emotional support ah, rooster. Perfect. <laughs> okay, go. All right, Bangkok. Um, stay at the Como. Stay at the Siam. Great places. Keep going south. The thing okay? people don't realize is this is actually how you travel. You go at that pace. Yeah, what's wrong with that? I'm just saying. <laughs> Keep going. We've only been to like four places now. I know. I said 10 days in Japan for three places. Yeah. And y- 10 days in Japan for you, you would do... The whole country. I said yeah. two oh, weeks absolutely. on the island yeah. of Bali. She would have Bali. shopped at every single <laughs> yeah. place that she could buy something. <laughs> Look, and I'm also like, I'm not in my 20s anymore either. This is admittedly how I travel. And if you, if you want to taste. If you don't like it, you can. Uh, talk to Jordy. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet Jordy. So, okay, where from? So where are we? Yeah. Ba- we're in Bangkok, okay. right? Okay. okay, at this point we've done Hong Kong. We have a rooster. Macau. We've gambled. We've eaten dumplings. We've. Did we We've win gambled. or lose? We lost. Are you kidding? We, and then we, we, went and we don't know how to play these games. We, which is why we needed the rooster. Right. Somehow. Emotional support. Yes. <laughs> emotional support. Thank right. you. Okay. We got guided tours of the temples in Siem Reap in Cambodia. We did. We didn't take that fucking photo. No. No, fuck that photo. Fuck that photo. <laughs> okay. Bangkok. Smoggy, beautiful. Loved it. And then from there, you need beach time, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Clearly. Everyone goes to Phuket. 
Don't go to Phuket. Yeah, fuck Phuket. Yeah, no. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> or as some people say, fuck it. <laughs> That's how a lot of people pronounce it. Uh, yep. That's not how you pronounce it, people. <laughs> I really, really liked Raleigh Beach off of Krabi. A lot of the beaches that Jordy recommended to you are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had a, personally had a great time. R-A-I-L-A-Y. Um, we stayed at a tiny little backpacker beach called Tunsai when we were there. Again, that was a long time ago. But it, these are the kind of places that have uh, limestone karst just off of the coast. So if you like to rock climb, if you're an active traveler, um, there's really great rock climbing there. Can you dive or snorkel? Or You can do some kayaking. There's some snorkeling. I didn't dive, but um, some of the best diving in the world is in Southeast Asia, in mm-hmm. Sipadan, off of Malaysia. Indonesia, Raja Ampat, where I was talking about. Mm-hmm. So I did it in... In Konang Yuan in Thailand, Kotao as well. Kotao, yeah. Okay. You're the thing about to be standing up for Japan. What about you? Sorry. Okay, I'll be quiet until Japan. The thing comes about Thailand again. too, though, is and this is like a scary thing about it. These beaches you're recommending in five, ten years, you probably won't be recommending them anymore. Yeah. Because Thailand is like closed. Yeah. Or they just tourists. get overrun, which is the problem. Like I, I went to Phuket like as a kid, maybe when I was like six or seven. Yeah. And I just remembered pristine. It was like two or three hotels, just empty beaches everywhere. And that was not that long ago. No. And now it's a circus, <laughs> you know, now it's insane. Now it's like you're in the main stretch of Cancun or something. These places change quick very and quick. develop very quick. And there's always people trying to constantly find the next untouched island. So just a disclaimer, if you're listening to this like 10 years from the data oh, yes. went up. And, uh, and you will be. <laughs> you will be um, on archive.org. Um, <laughs> just, just maybe do some research. Places that used to exist.org. <laughs> okay, so last stop. If you are still going, if you are not exhausted, you could stop in Thailand. You could do Hong Kong, Cambodia, oh, Thailand. come on. Done. Your rooster is not tolerating that. If your rooster wants a good meal, take him to Singapore. Yes. And, I mean, uh, and where do you go in Singapore to right. get a good meal? God, in Singapore, you have to go to the hawker centers, okay. yeah. right? I was I just mean, about to name only hawker centers when yeah. you said where to go in Singapore, because I would just be like, <laughs> just go and eat seven meals a day for three days. And what and are the hawker the centers so, for, for the uninitiated? Hawker centers are basically outdoor food courts. That's the closest thing that you would see in the U.S. You actually don't see anything that close to it in the U.S. I know Anthony Bourdain is talking about building a market that will have an element of a hawker center in New York City. It's no, different. Yeah, these are stalls. Okay, so there's dozens and dozens of stalls. Some of these markets are huge. They feed whole neighborhoods, whole communities. This is where people eat, right? You can get a $3 meal easily still. Maybe it's $5 now with inflation. No, the Michelin star, the cheapest Michelin star dish you can get for like a dollar forty or $2.40. Leo Fan. Leo Fan, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's well the done. F- yeah. first. I know, well played. <laughs> I don't bring the details, Catherine does. <laughs> <laughs> so you want details to eat, Catherine. <laughs> but each, um, what I love about hawkers, each stall is usually family run. So you'll get several generations cooking the same dish and they will specialize in like one to two dishes. So you're not going for like six kinds of ethnic eats. You're going for like the stingray at that stall. Right, mm-hmm. one dish. Or the hokey and me at that stall. At Maxwell Food Center, you go for, oh God, what I used to get there? Chicken rice. Chicken rice, maybe. Chili crab. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, oh my God. You go for and it's completely unlike the way we do restaurants here yeah. or food yeah. here. Meanwhile, the restaurant scene in Singapore is also incredible. Yeah. It has some of the best, again, Michelin star scene, but you don't even need it. Like Singaporeans are such foodies. They take such pride in both knowing what a good meal is and knowing how to make it that, I don't know, the, the country is made up of four major populations, the Filipino, 
Indian, um, Mandarin Chinese, Malay, and that mix kind of creates a Singaporean food culture. On top of that, you also have a lot of expats coming in, so you'll get like American food, you'll get French food, and you know, you can eat so well. You can go to Singapore just to eat, yeah. like literally, like you said, Seb. And, I, I mean, think, you I, mean, used, I, to I used to go there just to eat. Yeah. <laughs> and the, for me, it is the best city in the world for food. It's all of Asia just combining into this whirlpool of deliciousness. And it's an interesting, an interesting history interlude. I feel like classical music should start playing or something. History <laughs> right. interlude. The more you Brad. know, I feel like that should play. <laughs> yeah, the more you know. History interlude. The hawker centers are really interesting, too, in that they're like this weird, positive externality of what is an authoritarian regime in Singapore, essentially. So, like, this food was happening forever. It was, you know, it's based on the street food in Singapore with the Malay population, the Indian population, the Chinese population. And this was basically a way for the government to just control, like, hygiene standards based on the food, control taxes, control, you know, all, all the kind of rules and regulations around it by saying, okay, you guys can keep doing what you're doing, which these families had been doing for generations, you know. It's like one family making chicken rice for five generations, but you're going to do it in these spaces where you'll have like an assigned number and regular health checks and sanitary checks. And it works really well because you're eating street, what's essentially street food, but you're not worried about getting sick or whatever, like you would be eating street food in India, Wow. which okay. we haven't even talked about, which is one sixth of the world population yeah, is no also kidding. in Asia. We, we're not even, we're not, nobody has stuck up for India. We're going to have to do another We'll have one. to do a whole podcast. Yeah, on we're going to have to do another podcast. But so t- talking about planning your trip, people. history aside, if I'm going to the Hawker Center in Singapore, what should I know? Are there any rules? Should I just get as many dishes as I can? Honestly, you should what find would a you guys recommend? You should find a Singaporean. Okay. <laughs> Look for the lines. Yeah. There's it's always a good rule be, anywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. There's always going to be a long line at one stall or another, and in Singapore's case, it's worth it. Okay. And, and, you, and you don't, you're not going to get deceived by sort of tourism, right? No, because no. it's where no. the locals go to eat. Yeah, you know? okay. And it's one situation where I'd say don't believe what you read because there's a lot of like hype that certain places get if they're featured on you know Anthony Bourdain's show or if someone does a write-up in a big magazine where suddenly a lot of people are going to, and it's not necessarily the best place. Really, you're going to find the best place, and every Singaporean is going to have their own opinion about where the best bowl of laksa is or whatever. There's a whole period of history called the Laksa Wars in Singapore where there was actual people. It was called the food Laksa fight. Wars. Yeah. It's like, this is, this is how seriously this country takes food. Can there, there be was, a better reason to have a war? Yeah, then who no. has a better laksa, you know? Yeah. Well, you know what? You can pick up a copy of the Makan Sutra. I think it's still in publication. It's I hope it's still name. in publication. It, yeah, it's, um, it's basically a guidebook to the hawker centers. And it ranks places with little bowls with chopsticks. Hmm. So <laughs> something will get like three bowls or two bowls. That's so. for expense or how good it is? How good it is. Oh, is. Okay. Makan means food in Malay. So it's the food sutra. Get it, Brad? Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Slow old guy picking up. Is that what you're I couldn't tell if you were. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. So on the practical tip, that trip you just described, the trips you guys were just describing, what kind of visas, what do I need to know practically in order to prep for something like that? China takes the longest, so just know that, that if you need to apply for a Chinese visa, uh, it's like Russia, too. India, I too, is kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah, so just give yourself, you know, you're not going to get that visa overnight. I believe it took me a couple weeks, at least, to get. But I was also an American in Singapore applying for a Chinese visa, so there might have been a little extra red tape there, mm. but... Um, Indonesia, unless things have changed drastically, you can get a visa on arrival for 20 bucks or something. What was your experience in Thailand, Jordi? 
remember having to get a visa or anything. I yeah. don't know if anything has changed, but I don't remember it being a, a pain to, to get in at all. They kind of were welcoming with open arms. Yeah. Catherine, Japan? It's 90 days. On arrival. Visa-free. Yeah. Visa-free. Mm-hmm. 90 days. I, th- yeah. many, I think many of these countries have that rule for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Again, we don't know what things will look like That's six months point. from now, yeah, a year a from point. now. Keep reading the news. Those are the check that's how, embassies. No, ch- that's how we're getting the latest. Yeah. Check Condé Nast Traveler. We yes, will, we, we are covering. We will this. pay attention to. We'll this be paying stuff. attention yeah. to. Yeah, um, because mm-hmm. it is very much in flux in right flux. now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Catherine, you want to rebut anything here? Stick up for yeah, because you started, so I felt like you thought you had to be brief. But tell yeah. us more about what you were very. What succinct. should I do on my 2017 so, New Year's it. resolution? Sell it is hard. This is a lot of pressure. Cherry blossom season. We talked about that. So this is a huge thing, right? They. Japanese have been picnicking underneath cherry blossom trees since the 8th century. They actually have a word for it. It's my favorite time of year in Japan. It's coming What's up. What's the word? Say the word. Hanami. So it's two words because hana means flower and mi means like watching. And people take whole days off and they just picnic under the trees. So if you're in Tokyo, if you're in Kyoto, basically anywhere in Japan, you'll see these picnics and groups of people just sitting under the trees and just observing them. And I think that's speaks to the Japanese culture as a whole, you know, that's so respectful of their history and so respectful of nature. So that's my favorite time to be in Japan. It's right now, kind of like I said earlier. So the further south you are, it's like end of January, beginning of February. And as it goes north, kind of what you said, Brad, April is the peak blossom season. And the peak this year is expected to be between like April 4th and April 12th. Yeah. And actually the Japanese tourism board has this wonderful web this is, shows you how seriously they take it they have a website devoted to this where they've charted the peak blossom for the past 10 years so it'll show you you know where's the peak in kyoto and when should i go and when should i plan my trip around cherry blossoms i grew up on okinawa so i love i think that's got some of the best beaches in the world um, because it's so tropical it's on the same equatorial plane as hawaii so it's like the Japanese Hawaii, and it's got such a different culture from mainland Japan because it was basically a, an independent nation until like the 1600s. So it has a lot of Chinese influence. It has a lot of Japanese influence. The language is a bit different. The Japanese is a bit different. People don't think of Japan as having world-class beaches, and right. this is kind of a secret, right? There are world-class beaches there, and people don't know it. Yeah, and amazing scuba diving um, and snorkeling. I grew up doing that stuff. And actually, Pico Iyer, the travel writer, wrote a really nice essay for us on going to Okinawa because he's lived in Japan for, I think it's like 20 years, and he mm. said, you know, I've never really been to Okinawa, and he went and did this journey, and it's just such a different culture. But it's kind of what I talked to you about. Go to Tokyo, and it's a completely different feeling than going to Kyoto. And obviously the food is amazing. The food, yeah. Oh I mean, yeah, if you want... Don't let these guys run away. I'm don't sorry, run you're run setting me up. I'm Singapore. sorry. I mean, come on, we're talking about... Well, kind of what I talked about with well, nature, like, Japan. there's such a reverence for food and every ingredient. You know, go to Tsukiji Fish Market and take your meal from watching it be, you know, the fish that's bid on and then follow that fish to the sushi markets that are in Ginza there. Is that a strong case? That's um, a very strong case. Right. So, I've, I've, I've heard from people that I'm talking about my father right now who's Indian, loves Indian food. And he says the best Indian food, including in India, is in Japan because the I, Japanese just make, manage to do everything better than, you know, the, because the they're perf- people perfectionists. Yeah. I mean, the Japanese... Uh, sort of a characterization, I guess, but I found it really to be true is taking something and perfecting it. Like you said about the Indian, the best French 
bakeries I've had outside of France are in Japan. Japan. Like everything. And that's why I think Tokyo is such an exciting food city. I mean, Peter John Lindbergh did this amazing piece for us on the best food in Tokyo is, is, you know, at a counter where you pull up a stool. And it doesn't have that same sort of uh, hawkerish feel that you find in Singapore. It's kind of not all of it is as refined because there are a lot of restaurants where you sit on the floor and eat. But I think that's a good rule of thumb if you're in Japan is sort of seek those experiences where you're up close to the food and they're not hard to find. And what's cool about the fish market, especially if you're coming from the U.S., to do it on your first day there because you're going to yeah. be dealing with the jet lag. So mm, I did it the that's first. That's a great tip. Yeah, the first morning I got there because I was up super early anyway. So and you need to get there at like, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning to get online to watch the auction. Well, the auctions. Um, Yeah. Auction starts at four. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to get there super early and then you're having the freshest sushi in the world at like seven o'clock in the morning for breakfast. And it was just it was an incredible experience. And another note about the markets and the bottom of the shopping centers, there's all these incredible food markets where, like you said, I had some of like the best French pastries there that I've ever had in my entire life. And you could just spend hours walking around eating all the different food there. So I agree with the food. And Japan is also 10 years in the future. I remember when I came to college and everybody was excited about a camera phone. And I literally said, what are you talking about? I've had that for four years. Oh, snap. Oh, snap. It was crazy. I mean, just like if you want to see kind of what the future might look like, just go to Japan. Not all of it sticks. We're going to fix that. We're going to make make America four years ahead again. Oh, I thought you were going to say, oh, God. (laughs) But it's true. I mean, I think that can also probably be said for Korea. I haven't been to Korea in several years, but I love Seoul as a city. Oh, we should have had Gina on. She was just there. Yeah. She goes there every so often. Yeah. Do you feel like you could do a Japan-Korea trip? Do you think that's how long would you have? Uh, say ten days. Your your ten day metric. <laughs> you um, would. Yeah, you would. But regular humans would not. I mean, maybe like a, if you're just doing cities, maybe like a Tokyo Seoul trip or something. But I can, you can't imagine. You yeah. Can. Well, Kyoto's far from Tokyo, so if you were going to do all three, that'd probably be. a Well, stretch, you can yeah. take the bullet train. You could get there in about four seconds, two hours and <laughs> twenty minutes, which is a bullet train. Yeah, you could do all three in oh, ten boy. days. Oh boy, she's getting excited. You yes, could. she. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that's just one flight. Yeah, you could. You totally could. <laughs> you totally could. But should you? Why not? Oh, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh, that's okay. a whole other podcast. <laughs> all right. I think we gotta I think we gotta bring it to a close because there is so much else that we could talk and I think we need to have another one. We have we really we've talked a little bit about China with Jordy's trip to the wall, but I don't think we've really done it justice. We haven't even touched on Beijing. Yeah, yeah we Shanghai. talked a little bit about you I, talked about Xi'an. Hong Kong a, a little bit, but I, I think there's more to, much more to be said and we have not even broached India. India. And I have a whole Vietnam itinerary that okay. I didn't talk about. I think about, I want to so. hear the Vietnam itinerary, so I think we're coming back to this. So <laughs> Asia and, part two. Yeah, Asia part two. Not unexpected, but I think we got to do it. Meanwhile, thanks to all of you guys. These were really great. I'm so inspired at the moment. I'm definitely looking forward to Japan, but I'm feeling like FOMO for the other stuff too. So, <laughs> so those will be on the list. Subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes, we are on SoundCloud, and please visit us at seeandtraveler.com. We do have a lot of stuff about these new airlines. We have a lot of content about cherry blossom season, and we will be looking at changes in visa situations if they arrive. So keep an eye out for that. We are at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube, CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please do tweet at us, send us feedback, review us on iTunes. And let's tell people how they can get in touch with us. So, Jordy, people got to tweet at you if they can't reach Laura and if they want <laughs> details on her itinerary. So help them out. Where can they reach you? You can find me on Twitter at, at Jordy Lippy, J-O-R-D-I-L-I-P-P-E. Seb? 
I'm at Seb Modak on Instagram and Twitter, S-E-B-M-O-D-A-K. Catherine. And I'm on Twitter at KJ LaGrave, L-A-G-R-A-V-E. Ah, fine. Laura. I'm just kidding. Get ready for <laughs> all. I'm at she will not give you details, but she will plan your trip. I will plan your entire trip for you. It's fine. I love it. Um, I'm tweeting at you right now. At Danon825 for Twitter and at Laura underscore Redman on Instagram. And I am at Bradrick. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. Jordy, thank you thank so much. Thank you, Jordy. That yeah, was great. Yeah, thanks, Jordy. Me.